Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Eugene Merwin is known for making his own path to success, all while maintaining a lovably absurd childlike view of the world, which comes in handy as the voice of Gene on Fox's Emmy-winning Bob's Burgers, which debuts its sixth season this fall. You've seen him previously on Flight of the Concords, Delocated, Comedy Central, and Netflix, and heard him as a frequent co-host of Neil deGrasse Tyson's science show, Star Talk. His fifth comedy album, I'm Sorry You're Welcome, is coming out this fall as a nine-volume digital set, seven LPs, a chair, or even a robe. Eugene also has cultivated some of the greatest current voices in comedy with live showcases such as Invite Them Up, Pretty Good Friends, and annually each September since 2008, the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival in Brooklyn. So let's get to it! Eugene Merman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I'm talking to you on the eve of yet another Eugene Merman Comedy Festival. Yes. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> Which is full of, of, of great shows and great ideas. What was the last idea you had that you couldn't fully execute, either logistically or comedically? Um, for the festival? Or, or just in general. I know. <laughs> well, I think there's, first of all, you know, that's a great question because it definitely implies that we constantly like succeed in all these things. But I think that even from the first year, we've wanted to have some sort of lounging uh, ice cream bus limo thing that we've never really done. I've always, every year I want to do a show called uh, Nice Guy, Terrible Comic. Yes. And we never do that because of it being mean. But uh, well, well, meaning we, there's no one you could ask to do it, but it's clearly a funny idea. We, we do that just in uh, private emails. <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> look, I'm always putting that show on. Um, and then there's, you know, but a lot of it, it's funny because like we like I think this year we're going to have a bouncy castle with maybe a broker that you can like a real estate broker that you can yell at. OK. Um, I think there'll be like a lot of sort of silly things. I mean, uh, there are random things where I can't remember if we ever succeeded in having an after party full of Law and Order extras. Um, we might have. Like, it's hard to say because so many people are accidentally Law and Order, right? Like, like or bit players. You've definitely extras. done the show where everyone on the show has been part of Law and Order. Absolutely. And then I think at the after party we wanted to have it be full of like bit players, and I just literally can't remember. Like, did we find them or not? <laughs> are um, there any, are there any ideas that have been so great you wanted to bring them back, but? Like, well, and we have we've done the eye contact booth uh, because it's both simple and always mm -hmm. jarring. Meaning, anytime you walk into the bell house and then there's a cardboard box and I'm sitting in it, people are always like, "Oh, I want, oh, that it? Yep, that's him." <laughs> uh, you know, um, and the bouncy castle we've done different versions. One year I think we had a dunk tank. Um, last year we had a clown CPA that would give advice. We've had, a, I think this year we might not have a pig roast, but in the past we've had pig roasts and various animal roasts. When you decide to, or actually when you decided to do the festival even back in, in 2008, what was the first thing that you, that made you go, okay, this is going to be a thing? I think we thought we were doing it once. And then afterwards we were like, that was pretty fun, and I think we could do it again. And we've certainly gotten you know, more streamlined mm -hmm. in terms of just producing it and, and figuring out how to run it. And, and, you know, though everyone has moved to L.A. since. But but there's new people coming up and uh, a lot of people that are diehard uh, 
people who live here still. <laughs> Die hard, I want to say New Yorkers, but really I just mean like they haven't moved. <laughs> Die hard haven't moved these. They're, they're so loyal to the city that they refuse to move. Yeah, they're just like, they have work and they're fine. And they're like, I think I'll stay here. Or they have great deals on their apartment. And... Yeah, they're probably just happy to, they like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Todd Berry's deal is good or not good, but I feel like he's, he's in New York for the long haul. So Todd, if you're listening, please let us know how your deal is. Sure. Uh, wh- one of the things I've, I've enjoyed so much about your career, Eugene, is that you've kind of created your own path even Mm -hmm. as early as college. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. Uh, Oh, where where did that, where did that, where did that come from? Well, it came partially from my experience at Hampshire and from college, but I think, you know, and I get a lot of emails that are like, uh, that are always like, oh, I want to do comedy. How do I do it? Mm -hmm. And like, and you have to know somebody and always think that question is so funny because it's like, I don't know. I think you just have to think like I want to be a comedian in about 10 to 15 years and what are the things I could do every day to do that and I think for me you know it was always much easier I was also sort of a weirdo and my stand-up was you know would sometimes work out great and sometimes I would bomb a lot and it took a while to try different things and go like oh, okay this works like I want it to be funny like people I think associated like the idea of alternative comedy or whatever it is with like you're a weirdo on a stage with a flute and what you're doing doesn't make sense. But actually it's like you're just doing a joke in a slightly different way or the punchline is maybe it has a visual element. But um, I I think I always just thought that you had to just figure out your own way and I always just did much better organizing stuff than I did breaking into. Like I remember playing, uh, God, what was it? Mark Maron had recommended me to the comic strip and it was really sweet of him and I had just maybe done Conan. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember doing a set there and the owner just being like, you know, we already have some wordsmiths and, you know, I get that like people think you're funny. I don't get how what you're doing is comedy. And I thought I was telling jokes. Like I wasn't like, I didn't get up stage and like on stage of like play bongos and scream. Uh, I was like, and this is the thing that happened to me. And he was just like, nah, I don't know that you're doing what I, I don't know. So, so I think I just always found it easier to walk around the East Village and go like, hey, can you let me do a show? And then I would start, and then, you know, Bobby and I did invite them up and that sort of thing. Right. Was that Lucian at uh, the strip, or was that somebody else? Yeah, yeah. No, it was him. And he was, you know, he was very sweet about it. He wasn't like, he was just like, yeah, I just don't really get how how it's comedy, but I understand that some people do think it is, and you're one of them, and people who I really respect vouched for you, but I don't think it'll work. (laughs) Well, I... I was rewatching your uh, most recent Netflix uh-huh. special, Vegan at the Complaint Store. Yes. And uh, if I had to describe you, I would describe you as a situational comic. Mm-hmm. People talk about sitcoms, but they forget that that means situation comedy. Yeah. A lot of your comedy comes from just being in a in a situation and recognizing that this is abnormal. Yes. Or or even it's a it's a regular situation but you see the surreal absurdity in it. Right. Or I create a sort of unusual situation. <laughs> but yes, it's true and uh yeah, I think that's that's very accurate. How how young were you when you first when you first saw a situation for for what it wasn't? <laughs> well, I think I um I I have no idea. I mean, I think I always see a thing in, in, you know, from whatever weird point of view that Mm -hmm. I think it's like, well, this is actually clearly the way you should look at this, even if it isn't necessarily the way most people would. Um, Yeah, I don't know when the first when the first time I was like, this is what the the truth is. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, definitely by the time you were in college, you knew that comedy was 
going to be your thing. I knew that I was going to work at it, but I didn't. But, you know, even when I was in college, you know, I, I must have done the same 10 minutes for years until I realized, like, oh, you should change it up or mm-hmm. write new jokes or, you know, I was terrified of. I mean, I think I did stuff that was weird. So I, for years, was sort of afraid of failing. And then eventually I was like, I need an hour. I have to try tons of stuff and whatever works I have to keep. But how did you how did you go to Hampshire College and 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 create your own major everyone creates their own major at hampshire i just always knew that i wanted to do comedy so so i so everything that i did is like you know i took classes and you know in the rise of mass culture or writing or film or whatever and i would just do something related to comedy in it and did you have then a a thesis performance i i so so hampshire is three divisions so division one is this sort of like a paper in science a paper in social science or independent study Mm -hmm. um or classes so uh, I did that, and then and then Div Two is this general thing where you amass all this different stuff. Like I took class in, you know, descriptive writing or playwriting or acting or you know, uh, documentary filmmaking. And then I also did like a weekly humor column and I have radio show and all that stuff. I combined into this general concentration. And then for my thesis, my Div Three, my final project, I wrote and performed and produced uh, a one-hour stand-up show. So I ran a weekly show where I would try stuff. I'd go to New York and Boston and do sets. And I, I slowly you know, put together this hour of material because I just thought, well, I guess that's what you do. You have an hour of material. And I booked a show at our dining commons at Hampshire. But I got like 400 people to come, which in a sense was, was great considering there was no reason to come see me. <laughs> How did you advertise that show? Well, I had a radio show and a column, okay. and I so think I was knew doing you on so, campus. Yeah, and I and I advertised throughout the five college area, and um, you know there was a newspaper that came to write about it, and I I faxed press releases. I mean, I basically did everything I thought you could do, and it turned out like, oh, you can. Like like the the thing that was great for about Hampshire was, I did this thing, and it worked out in its mild way, but I realized like. You can send out press releases. So when I moved to Boston, I used to fax press releases all the time. But I didn't know. It's not like someone showed me what a press release was. I would just go like, there's a new comedy scene coming, and it's at this (laughs) Chinese restaurant. Show up if you want to be on the inn. And sometimes people would. I mean, sometimes people would go like, I don't know what you're talking about. I remember sending a press release to the Boston Globe that said that me and Aerosmith are doing a benefit for (laughs) hands. And I remember the Boston Globe calling me and being like, what do you mean? And I was like, Oh, I didn't think anybody would see this. <laughs> I didn't realize that there was a person at the end of it who like has written about me before and is like, what are you talking about? And it's right. like, I made up a dumb lie that makes no sense. I thought it was silly. So you were you were an early uh, internet troll before the internet. Well, I wasn't a troll. <laughs> I thought I was promoting. I mean, I used to also like hand out a thousand flyers right. that had like an article and, you know, I don't know. I basically would do whatever I thought you could do. I mean, this was before, yeah, the internet, meaning before like Facebook and Twitter. Right, you were faxing. You weren't emailing. Yeah, I was faxing. (laughs) I don't know if you could. I mean, that's how you, I think, got information to people. I I don't really know. I I would do just whatever I thought you could do to be further ahead the next day than you were the day before. That sort of of my my thing. Who inspired that work ethic? Um, The idea of failure. (laughs) Like, Like, meaning I, there was... I wanted to be a comic, right. and I definitely didn't not want to be a comic. So I just did, and some of it, you know, would work, and some of it would fail. You mm-hmm. know, I had many shows of like there's seven people here, and 
you know, it takes years to have everything break through, which is why I always think like when people are like, I want to be a comic, I'm like, I think if you work basically every day for 10 or 15 years, you'll probably succeed. Who was, who was the first uh, comedian that you heard or saw who put that, that idea in your brain? Uh, the idea of being a comedian. Yeah, being a oh, comedian. Oh, uh, well, I loved Emo Phillips I kn- as a kid. Yeah, so you know that, that. I know that we share that love of emo. Yeah, he was. It was. He was so funny and so interesting, and I loved his stand up. Bobcat, I loved, and he directed my last special. But like his movies and his stand up, and uh, you know, I mean, there was tons of stand up that I really loved. But I don't think it, I loved it throughout my life. I don't think it occurred to me until I was maybe around seventeen or so. Okay. 16, 17, that like stand-up was a job. Like some people did stand-up, even though I knew that people did stand-up. But I, I, I don't think it it occurred to me that that's like a thing you could pursue, probably because there's no formal academic, like you can get a degree and become a lawyer or a doctor. With stand-up, you know, not only did I not know what to do, I was like, maybe you, fa- I didn't, you know, maybe you fax things or maybe you hand out flyers. You also have to probably make people laugh when they show up. Right, you were, for- thing. You were fortunate that you went to a college that allowed you to create a major and yeah. a degree in it, but but other other students don't have that. Oh, really. totally. Just... But I mean, they could still do all those things in whatever way. I mean, now some people do. I think there's those programs exist, but that isn't right. like I'm not a comic because I went to a college that let me do that <laughs> because it says on your degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People aren't like, well, I don't think he's funny, and then like, but uh, it says he has a bachelor's of arts. No, I mean it's. <laughs> It's more that, yeah, I, I chose to do a thing in college that helped me right. throughout my life, but not everyone does that. Before you hit 17, did you have a career that that you were aiming toward before? I think it was like film or entertainment mm-hmm. or I don't know. I mean, I wasn't like the, you know, I didn't like do a lot of high school plays. I loved comedy. I didn't know what it meant. Like, But I also was very happy to be like, maybe I'll be a writer. Maybe I'll be a, a humor columnist. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I kind of was like, I want to do comedy in some capacity. So you said when you were, when you were studying for your finals, you you booked yourself in shows in New York and Boston. What was the first? So you did have club experiences. Oh before, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, before well, that comic strip. Oh, and even spot. when I was in. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that comic strip spot was after I'd done Conan. Right. So by that point, I had been. Oh, I would come and do bringer shows at Stand Up New York. I used to do shows at uh, Dick Doherty's Comedy Vault mm-hmm. when I was in college. I would go to Boston. And do you know a five minute, six minute set, whatever it was, um, and uh, yeah, I would. And then in general, I would you know. Then I started doing stuff at uh, the Hong Kong when I moved to Boston, and I would do sets there. And that's sort of where like the Conan show saw me, and where I you know I did Aspen from there. And then at some point, I realized I had to move to New York because there's not. I used to think like I'll get a job in New York, and then I'll right. move there because I was kind of scared of New York because it's a giant city full of uh, just so so much, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't know if anxiety or just like, it's all tightly knit. No, a lot of people who don't live here in New York still have that feeling. Yeah. And, uh, and when I first got here, it was pretty overwhelming. But then, you know, eventually it gets better and better. Did you have, did you have to have day jobs or? I worked at a, a kick-ass law firm. Uh, <laughs> was I was the, a floating... Was, was that in the title, kick-ass law firm? No, I was, at a, I was a floating secretary at a law firm that at the time they were... Their, their clients were Martha Stewart, Enron, and WorldCom. Okay. Uh, my law firm did not fuck around with who <laughs> no. they defended. The people they defended fucked around, but they, did, but they, they did themselves not. did not. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, they... Uh, so, so so I worked, yeah, I attempted a law firm for a while. I mean, I would, you know, I created a great deal of credit card debt. I would get, like, some comedy work, mm-hmm. and then I wouldn't have any. 
I think once I basically got uh, an agent, a booking agent, and my first album, a lot of stuff from there kind of, you know, once you could make like $200 in like, say, an evening or 150 even, right. that's vaguely enough to live in a room in New York. You, you, you know, <laughs> meaning I had enough work that I could, you know, s sort of make enough to, to live in a place. And then slowly over time, like then Super Deluxe came. And oh, then yeah, like, Super Deluxe. And, then, and then throughout that, you know, there'd be like, you know, there'd be Concords or Deluxe. And then like you started getting sort of work steadily. What, what was the moment... Was there a moment that you that you saw that things were coming together and you wouldn't have to be a temp anymore? Um, after I quit my temp job, I thought I would keep that temp job because I was like, this is this would be really smart. I could keep this temp job and I could take this money I've made from making these interstitials for Showtime right. and I could really. But then the second, I think like I got a check for like two thousand dollars, whatever it was, the mm -hmm. second that it was like. Oh, I don't actually have to go to this law firm tomorrow. <laughs> I literally called and I was like, "I'm never coming back." I'm in like a very polite way. Right. I wasn't like, oh, "I'm not." Coming. I was just like, "Hey, uh, this is Eugene. I, uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm never coming again." <laughs> um, because it was around the time I did Third Watch, which admittedly was just like oh, three right, days right. of filming or something, but still was like three weeks of temp work. Was that your first screen credit? What was your first screen credit? Home Movies, uh, Brendan oh, Small and Lauren Bouchard's show, and then after that, Conan. And then maybe after that, I might have, oh, then probably late Friday, um, right, right. you know, but, but it's really funny because when you, when you're trying to do this and you first do, like, I remember when I first did Conan and I can't remember what the check is you get after taxes, but it's literally like $700. It's something that, that is, you know, more money than in a sense you ever make in a day normally as a person, but not, but not enough to not make that much the second day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. you're just like, oh my God, that's a third of my rent. I'm not. I didn't just make it. There's no, there's no like version of making it anymore uh, until you have sort of various study work and as some stuff comes, other stuff goes and vice versa. Right. Like being a regular series regular on Bob's Burgers now yes. in its sixth season. That's exactly that's steady enough to know, okay, I've got this job that it's is, in syndication. And that is the, yes, this is definitely the closest to, and the truth is any normal person who works anywhere wouldn't know if they're what their next job, you know? So yeah. Right. But we also spent like years making this thing and yeah, now it's like in, in hindsight, it's like, Oh my God, I have a job. But at the time <laughs> it was like two years of making an eight minute demo where when Lauren called and was like, Hey, they're going to make 12 episodes. Right. We were all, like, that's amazing because we spent like two years or something making this demo that we didn't know would ever become anything. And now it's totally a, a legitimate show. Is is the timeline usually longer for an animated project? I don't I don't to, know. To be in the works? I, uh, I you know, literally have no idea. Oh, okay. uh, I, I think like because I wasn't the one who created it. I was just sort of like we would come right, in. Right. And when you did Delocate and, and Concords, you were just a, a supporting player. So well, I mean, yeah, we I knew that it was happening or like right. we would. Yeah. But um I have no idea what the behind the scenes of like making the show happen or pitching it or any of that stuff was. Okay. You know, I know with like my own stuff, but I don't know. When you, that. when you were temping, did the, did the people at the law firm know that you were a comedian? No, I think there was like, and people were, you know, the amount that people, uh, belittled you and mostly <laughs> other secretaries but also i mean it's a very feudal place sure um it no i think there was like firm. a it was first of all it was a very good law firm <laughs> like i would have them defend me if i ever cheated anyone out of uh whatever the pensions <laughs> i don't think i have anyone has pensions with me but no um 
Yeah, they were. Uh, no, I think like even the week I started working there, there was maybe like a story about me in like the you know Time Out New York or something. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how many of them checked out the Time Out New York. <laughs> but I did have to at some like you know when I was kind of going like, oh, am I going to stay and work at like like stay here or go off? I did have to go like to my boss who was actually I think the first boss I had was was a bummer <laughs> like like meaning calls of like. I thought I was wearing very lovely dress pants, but I'm sure I wasn't because the, the temp agency would call and be like, we need you to dress more professionally. And I was like, I don't know. I think it's just my attitude. Uh, no, it was your pants. It was my pants. But uh, I had to go to this woman and go like, um, you know, I, I know you guys don't know this, but like I do comedy and acting and I can't come in next week because I'm going to be on uh, a show called Third Watch. And I think she was like, what? what? Uh, but she was very nice about it. And then I think even after I did that, I maybe worked, you know, the following week, and then I think I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I'm never coming back. Uh, in a very, again, polite, like, hi, I, I'm never returning. <laughs> uh, getting back to, I, I, I know that uh, both in Boston and New York, you've created your own shows. Mm-hmm. For a while, people only talked about that as alt comedy. Yeah, yeah. But what, how did you go about, about setting up these shows? Um, well, I mean... In Boston, there was like I went to a bunch of places. Like I would go and find, and I found a place that let me do it called the Green Street Grill. They let me do it for about nine months, and then also there was the the comedy club, uh, the comedy studio in Harvard Square, and I went there. And uh, I think at first, and at first I asked Rick, I wanted Sunday nights. I assumed Sunday nights were like the least popular night, but it turns out Sunday nights are the night comedians often have off, and that's when he had the biggest crowds. <laughs> And then after I started this thing on Thursdays, he saw that that was sort of working out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And when that, when they were like, we should, when the when the club that I started at that was like, we should replace this with Irish music because that'll be much more popular. They were right. <laughs> uh, Rick was like, well, you you and Brendan and Patrick Borelli can have um, Friday nights here. So we did. We ran Friday nights there for a while. And then when I got here, similarly, like me and my friend Bill Wasik and Brian Spinks, we had a show in the Lower East Side, not far from Luna for maybe like a, eight months or a summer or something. I can't remember exactly. And then after that, uh, I found Rafifi, and then me and Bobby started that show there. What What do you always look for in a, in a venue to, um, to be receptive for comedy? Well, I think that having a bar outside the main room is good. I think one of the few exceptions where it actually works out very well is Union Hall. Um, but generally, you know, yeah, a, a, a nice, uh, small, tight room that, that is also not long but is more... Like meaning, there's some some showrooms where at the back you can't really hear the show, and then as a result, you have people chatting, and it right. and it all sort of falls apart. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It all every room's a little different. Right? Does it does it does it help or hurt if it's if it's already pre-existing as a live music venue? Um, I mean, Rafifi happened not to be Union Hall happened to be though. I think again, Union Hall was when it first opened. Is when Julie and I started that show. Um, I mean, it's funny because now so many shows take place in all those spaces. At right. the time, I think it was a little. I was. I mean, it was probably not that unusual for New York because there were all these shows happening in those sorts of spaces. I uh, guess. I guess I'm thinking more for people who are listening who are. Who I would are not in a city that's even accustomed to comedy. Oh the, yeah, if you're not in New York or LA or whatever, I would just say like any space. Like it doesn't like meaning. Any space where a, a second thing isn't happening. So, like, the problem with a cafe could be somebody might be wanting to read or write or chat there. Mm-hmm. 
But theoretically, yeah, if it's a small music venue or or a cafe or whatever or a bookstore that has a, a, a performance room, I think it's basically like anywhere where you could do a thing where 20 to 30 to, or more people could come. You know, if you if you can find a room that, that feels full with 30 people, you've done a great thing. How many people did you fill in the room in, in uh, Tucson or outside of Tucson where you filmed the? the oh, I don't know how big that room is, like four or five hundred probably okay um but i don't i don't really know i mean but i don't mean like if you're filming a tv special there's right. somebody who like who brings in an audience and your fans can come and there's like that's a whole different process right, but you're I mean, still but you're still scouting a, a location and going oh this is where I, I would like to do my special here oh yeah uh, it was pictures of that place were sent to me i wasn't personally there in fact i'd never been to tucson until i taped the special but i love cities that are like sort of a little off the beaten path mm-hmm. um and people don't come to necessarily all the time uh, and I loved Tucson. It was really fun. And that place was really fun. It was this funny sort of cowboy western town. Yeah. Uh, um, Bobcat had scouted it. Uh, and, and it was the the uh, Jack from New Wave actually went to college there. And that's sort of how he had suggested this place. And then when I saw it, I saw, thought that looked really neat. Uh, a lot a lot of a lot of people know your your comedy either. People who don't know you that well yeah. tend to, to find out about you either through things that go viral, for lack of a better word, uh-huh. whether it's a real letter that you write, yeah, yeah. an open letter, or fake signs and ads that you make. Yes. Do you remember the first kind of gag that you that you Oh, yeah. I, uh, the first thing was in college, I think. I guess it must have been 92 or 93 or something, and I wrote a letter to MCI. Communications uh, giant. Yeah, at the, the at the time, a communications giant, I wrote a letter to MCI in maybe 1992 or something, and then I put it on, like, I don't even know how it worked, but, like, rec.funny backslash oh, humor. Oh, bu- bu- bulletin board. A bulletin the, board. The pre-internet. And, internet. Uh, and I, you know, it was a letter that I did really send to MCI, because they send, like, something about friends and family, and I think I was, like, if we're really family, like, how I was in their family. I can't remember what the letter was. I mm-hmm. bet it's still on the internet. Um, and I uploaded it, and I remember it getting you know, hundreds of thousands of views or something where I was like, that's good. I don't know how it worked. I, I just like, <laughs> but again, like when I say like at the, you know, I started trying to figure out ways to become a comedian once I started like trying to become a comedian. So I would, you know, I remember writing something like a weird fake, like make believe history of Nixon that I tried mm-hmm. to send into a local paper and they were like, Nixon died half a year ago. None of this makes sense. And I was like, right. Okay, well, I thought it was pretty funny, but I guess everything you're saying is true. My made-up history of Nixon half a year after he died is really weird to try to publish mm. in your sort of humor paper slash weekly. <laughs> when when did you get the, the knack for it? Uh, the knack for writing letters? For, or for, 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 yeah, for pulling this stuff off without having people question you and just laughing, enjoying the joke. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure some people hate it. Uh <laughs> I I mean, in terms of like, I mean, the Time Warner thing was, I mean, I don't know when I got the knack because I before that, I guess I did the Delta thing. I think a lot of it was is that uh, it's often like a thing that is quite relatable to many people, like meaning, you know, with Delta, a lot of people have been screwed by uh, sort of the inefficiency and bureaucracy of airlines. And then right. Time Warner was like the, 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 the their business model is so poor that it's. 
that I think a lot of people were like, this has happened to me and this is this feels just. Even Time Warner, who replied to my letter, were like, yeah, you're you're pretty re- like what you're saying is very reasonable. <laughs> did you uh, did you ever look at any other books? Like I'm thinking about uh, Laszlo Toth. Letters that Don no, I've, wrote I or... know of those, but no, not really. I mean, a lot of it was just more, and in general with all this stuff and like the sort of letters or whatever it is, a lot of it uh, or the signs is just like sort of something, a funny thing that I, you know, like with the Facebook ads was like, I would see these ads and sometimes they would clearly be targeted. And I was like, I wonder how Facebook advertising works. And then I decided to do it. And then I realized you could make your own super weird ads and target them at anybody you want. And so I started doing that. And then I would see the results and I would see who like clicked on what and where they went, and then I realized like you could send people to CNN's homepage or whatever. You could do anything because you're paying for it. Right. The internet has made has made targeting demographics so yeah. much easier. Yeah, how, yeah. How much of that? Uh, how much of that do do you use for your own promotional ventures as a comedian? Or you don't really care. I mean, it's not that I care. I would of, like to be very I mean, popular, but um, but you don't focus as a comedian on the the business side of promoting yourself. No, other than, As like, in a normal way. Like, I'm doing just, a podcast, right. I guess. But no, like, meaning, I don't think I'm, like, one really great targeted Facebook ad away from, like, you know, having a, <laughs> a hyper, like, successful career. Right. Like, I'm not going to, like, I'm not, like, I mean, I'm sure that Facebook advertising or whatever, advertising or marketing is uh, important and helpful and I, I'm partake in it, but I don't, right. but I don't think, like... Well, I, I guess I'm just thinking, like, I've seen you make promotional videos for YouTube, but they've more been just for fun. They haven't been so much to try to oh yeah yeah to strike a chord and and go viral per se. Yeah, I think the things that Indeed. I make that end up being viral, like you know the guy who took a picture of my l- l- advertisement for the Portsmouth, uh, the the parking ticket thing. Um, you know, somebody put that online and that went viral, but that wasn't like me necessarily making it go viral. I'm also like, I will make a thing that I think is funny and then sometimes it will resonate and sometimes people will be like, oh, that's super weird. Yeah. You know, like the video I have right now, I think promoting my album, which is a crazy album. I think people uh, find maybe if you happen upon it, you find it funny, but I don't think it's like, it's, it's, it's not like that's what's going to really sell. I just think it's like a funny, silly video. And you're talking about the box set. The which, box set album, Which yeah. you can get as a chair or a robe, yes. but not as a box. You can get it as a, as, a, as a LP box. You just can't get it as CDs because nobody really needs CDs. But you can get it digitally. <laughs> I mean, it's available in every reasonable format. Mm-hmm. And then also it's available in two unreasonable <laughs> formats. Well, let me, let me look at... Let, I, I made sure to print this out, so... I made sure to know all the LPs that are on. Sure. I'm sorry. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, so we have a, a fuckscape. Yeah, we definitely have a fuckscape. Which is separate from Eugene's comprehensive sound effects library. Absolutely. The fuckscape is its own scape to fuck to. <laughs> it's, a, it's a romantic soundscape to fuck to. The guided meditation for the thoughtful body. Yes. Uh, digital drugs. Yeah, 10 binaural digital drugs from apple cider vinegar to uh, marijuana, LSD. Now, you have that before the LP of 45 Minutes of Crying. Sure. Is that, is that intentional that you want the crying to come after the drugs? I don't intend for anyone to listen to all this straight through. I think that someone might, and I right. would like to tell that person, uh, I guess, I'm sorry, you're welcome. <laughs> Which was the last of these ideas to, to make it onto, the L- onto one of the LPs? Well, I had... Uh... I had a lot, like I had like 30 or 50 ideas or something, and then some we would try to record and some 
you know, became like reasonable. And then some were like, oh, I don't know if that'll work. So it's not even as much as what was last to make it as an idea. It was like, what we did some of the musical stuff last. So Fuckscape okay. and the digital drugs were sort of some of the things that we did towards the end. The crying was the very first thing I did because uh, I, I recorded it alone. And then from that, I kind of was like, I definitely need to record this with like friends who really know how to record. I mean, this crying sounds great, but there's no way I'm making a fuckscape on my own. You know well, that no, feeling. Not... You know that feeling of sitting around in your home being like, "I can't make a fuckscape on my own. I need help." Well, I think by definition you can't on your own. That's a yeah. That's a different. It's a different thing. That's a different scape. No, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Do, uh, have you have you have you learned any better techniques about crying since recording yourself? Um, uh, no. I just you know you just let it go. You gotta because I wanted it to be earnest, sound earnest. Okay. So it's just uh, 45 minutes of earnest crying. <laughs> I just really liked, I think, in fact, this album partially came out of the idea that I thought it would be so fun to have an al- like a new album and then like a thing, like a sticker on it that said like, plus over 45 minutes of crying, <laughs> as if like people had always demanded that they get 45 minutes of crying and finally I'm giving them the like the demos they'd always wanted. Um, so yeah. Uh, one of the last times we talked in depth, uh, you were telling me about how you wanted to go back to Russia. Yes. In, in film. Yes. Have you done that? When is that? I, I have it? not done that. I've sort of put it on hold. Also, Russia is a much more tumultuous place than I think <laughs> when I first wanted to do it. There's just like so much more murder. Um, but I still maybe would. I'd still go back. I, I think for a while we were sort of pitching it around and now sort of paused it. But I would definitely consider going there and maybe just taping a special and then, you know, doing other stuff around that. Um, the project has not gone away because I do hope to go back to Russia at some point since I've never been there. But I haven't, but I haven't like sort of furthered it in any real way. Ah, so it's your Moby Dick. Uh, I guess. I mean, at the time I <laughs> thought I would just whale. go and your... do this thing and then... You know, they started poisoning people with plutonium or whatever. Well, as we record this, though, Vladimir Putin wants to sit down with Elton John. So really, yeah, that was that was the news that came out this morning. Was he wanted to sit Russia's down? Russia is the John. best place where Russia, where like Putin's like, you know what, homophobia, it's got to go. Maybe I'll sit down with Elton John. What? Just like I, I don't know anything about this, so I have to read right. up on it. But I love that that is Putin's idea of like. The, like this, this will this will fix things. I mean, and maybe it will. It's like I'm not saying it's ineffective. It's just the weirdest thing that I've ever heard. Well, you know, it, it's it follows topless topless riding on a horse, horseback riding. Yeah, but you know, I talked at some point to somebody, and they were sort of saying like all that stuff that Putin does. That we're like, why would you like wrestle a tiger mm-hmm. with no shirt? And the answer is, it's. Uh, and I think David O'Doherty said this to me because he went to Moscow with a with another Irish comic, and they did a show there. And somebody was in Moscow was like, we know that all this stuff is crazy. He's doing that to keep 12 time zones together. He's doing that because Russia's a gigantic place. And in little villages, they want to see a macho guy wrestle a horse. And they're like, that shirtless man wrestling the horse, he can stand up to <laughs> France. <laughs> you know, so, so that's like, so some of that stuff that seems silly to us also mm-hmm. seems silly to them, probably seems silly to Putin. Um, but I, I love it that we're we're about to have Cossacks not whip people in bands. Yeah, and it's uh, progress. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, what is the in terms of your own progress? What's the last uh, great piece of advice you've received from somebody? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like somebody literally gave me some really good advice. 
but I can't remember it. I think I've just folded it into my being. Mm. Um, do you do you ever feel like uh, you have to, if Putin has to do something crazy to keep Mother Russia together, do you feel like every once in a while you have to do something completely silly and absurd to keep your Eugene. own comedy? <laughs> Eugene, Eugene together. Eugene together. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm so excited for this record because I've wanted to do it for so long. And I think the fact that it just kind of was like, I think it's like reasonable to, to do it. I don't know. Um, I And that also things like making it a chair and a robe, which I really wanted to do, but just didn't know if it would be possible. Sub Pop figured out, you know how to do it and it'll be embroidered. Like the, the robe will be embroidered so it'll look like the cover of the LP. Um, yeah, have I you, don't know. Have you worn it? No, I think it's being finished now like it's literally like today or tomorrow i think they'll have them but i i don't know offhand and i haven't i don't think the chair is done yet oh um yeah i mean it's still in flux this is no i mean it's being made it takes right there's it takes manufacturing yeah it's still we still have as as we record this there's still some suspense about how it's going to turn out yes i've seen photos so i think there (laughs) might be um mock-ups or something like it but uh yeah there is suspense I mean, until you actually put on the robe and walk around in it. Yeah, maybe I will. It's still it's it's like a Christmas wish. Yeah, it's Wait. true. Until it's true that until often I see a thing exist, I am in doubt whether it will. But I think in this instance, I think it's it's pretty close. Do you do you feel that way with the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival too? That until you see it happen, it's like, is this really happening well, again? We did do well. Now it's like I mean, it's literally the eighth year. Um, I think. Now it's sort of like we, we know it's it's coming, but each time there's always like fun and silly things that sort of happen, and uh, and also it's a chance literally to like see people you don't see all the time, and and that part is very fun. Well, I'm 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 for one so so happy and glad that you create this fun for us. Thank every you, year. and thanks. and thanks for sitting here with me. I of really course. appreciate it. Very happy to. I had a lot of fun. Last. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.